In Scotland, when friends get together, they blether. When these three friends happen to be Scottish Blue Badge tourist guides, you can be sure that the country that they're so passionate about will be right at the heart of their discussions, be it contemporary or historical, culinary or cultural, reminiscence or anecdote. From accommodation to zoos, the chat will range right across the entire alphabet of topics and issues that are live and happening in Scotland right now. We hope that you'll join us. There's nothing to beat a recht good blether. And you could also join in our blethers on social media. You can find us as at Scottish Blethers on both Facebook and Instagram. We post additional content during the week that supports the podcast episode. We love making the podcasts and would love it if you could share them with your friends and leave a review on the platform of your choice. Hello, welcome to episode 42 of Scottish Blethers. I'm Liz Lister. And I'm Helen Houston. And have you had a good week this week, Helen? I've had a very good week. I've ventured as far afield as Glasgow during the course of the week. Ooh, the big city. It is. Yes. And what about you, Liz? You're up in the Highlands? I'm still up in the Highlands. We've been enjoying some spectacular weather, so it's been like my summer holiday up here in the Highlands. But of course, this is a big week in the social calendar of Scotland because um, apart from Wimbledon being on and we will have our own Scottish representation there, which I know you're going to talk more about, Helen, it's all uh, what some people have come to know as Holyrood Week. Um, although in recent times, Buckingham Palace social media have taken to referring to it as Royal Week. Have you heard of either of these, Helen? No, I haven't. I haven't heard of the, the, the week. I know it's always this week the Queen goes and stays at Holyrood, but I've not heard given it a title before. Exactly. Well, what's even more confusing is that it's not a week, it's just four days. But for <laughs> those four days at the end of June, beginning of July, the Queen and members of the royal family are out and about around Scotland, celebrating Scottish achievement and in particular, recognising the contribution of individuals and communities through a range of in-person visits and events. It's the time to go royal spotting. In the past, monarchs would undertake what was called the Royal Progress, a tour of their kingdom, the purpose of which was to see and be seen. With a large retinue in tow, it didn't take them long to eat and drink their way through all the local produce. And when the stench of one royal residence became too great to bear, they'd move on to the next. Plenty of castles and royal palaces to work their way around. With improved sanitation and supply chain logistics and a vastly trimmed down retinue of followers, you'd hope that these factors are no longer an issue for the royals. But they do still like to get out and about, being seen up close in person, bringing a bit of pomp and ceremony, or as much as COVID restrictions will allow, and making use of the opportunity to hear what the issues of the day are for the ordinary people of Scotland they meet from all walks of life. It was a poignant visit for the Queen, her first visit to Scotland since the death of her husband, the Duke of Edinburgh, in April, 
and only possible with the easing of the restrictions that resulted in last year's tour being cancelled. This year, she was accompanied for the first two days by her grandson, Prince William, the Duke of Cambridge, or known as the Earl of Strathairn in Scotland. And then it was the turn of her daughter, Princess Anne, the Princess Royal, to join her for events on the third and fourth days. If it was an emotional time for her, the Queen showed no sign as she literally beamed her way around Scotland. As a royal tweet from Buckingham Palace stated, Her Majesty is connected to Scotland by ancestry and deeply held affection. And it was clear to see. The sun shone and was reflected in her smile. And her outfits, particularly her hats, were spectacular. I just wish I could post some of the photos from the tour on social media. But copyright prevents, so please look them up for yourselves. The Queen looked as if she was enjoying every moment of being out and about after spending most of lockdown at Windsor Castle. She looked amazing. The Royal Visit offers an opportunity to showcase Scotland's success stories. And so where better for a first stop than a visit to AG Bars Factory in Cumbernauld, <laughs> famous for the production of Scotland's other national drink, Iron Brew. They were given an overview of the history of the company before opening a new processing facility and meeting employees to learn about the importance of the company to the local community from which it draws its 1,000 workforce. Both were offered a taste of the iconic beverage. The Queen politely declined and signed the visitor <laughs> book instead. But William accepted a sip. After spending his student years at St Andrews University, I'm sure it's not the first time he's sampled bar brew. From there, it was across to Edinburgh, to the Palace of Holyrood House, the Queen's official residence in Scotland. The palace is closed for the duration of her stay, so visitors and tour guides beware, plan ahead. You can tell that she's in residence by the flag flown over the palace, the Scottish variant of the Royal Standard of the United Kingdom. You might also spot members of her ceremonial bodyguard in Scotland, the Royal Company of Archers. Formed in 1676, they wear a distinctive uniform, featuring a dark green tunic with black facings, dark green trousers with a crimson stripe, and a balmoral bonnet with the Royal Company's badge and an eagle feather. And they still function as an archery club today. The palace forecourt is transformed into a colourful parade ground for her arrival, with 700 invited guests and a guard of honour. Provided this year by the Balaclava Company, the Argyllan Southern Highlanders, 5th Battalion, the Royal Regiment of Scotland, and supported by the Pipes and Drums of the Black Watch, Royal Regiment of Scotland and Band of the Royal Regiment of Scotland. Quite a welcome party. After inspecting the Guard of Honour, after inspecting the Guard of Honour, the main event is an ancient tradition called the Ceremony of the Keys. Edinburgh's Lord Provost, that's the Scottish equivalent of the Lord Mayor in England, addresses the Queen, saying, we, the Lord Provost and the members of the City of Edinburgh District Council, welcome your Majesty to the capital city of your ancient and hereditary Kingdom of Scotland, of your Majesty's good city of Edinburgh. The keys of the city are presented on a cushion of red velvet, edged with gold braided fringe and with thistles embroidered at its four corners. The Queen then returns them to the Lord Provost, saying, I return these keys being perfectly convinced that they cannot be placed in better hands than those of the Lord Provost and councillors of my good city of Edinburgh. Formality's over, 
the royals then held a, a private meeting with a group of volunteers and local government key workers, speaking about their roles during the pandemic and thanking them for their efforts. Away from the high-profile events and the associated pomp and ceremony, this is the nexus of a royal tour. The opportunity to meet individuals who've made a difference in their communities, to listen to the challenges and issues they face, and to lend their recognition and support. Today it was the turn of a contracts manager who had ensured a supply of vital equipment throughout the pandemic, and a volunteer working to help the homeless who've been particularly hard hit in recent times. Listening, supporting, but most importantly, gaining understanding. While the royals may not be political, the influence of the monarch in directing policy shouldn't be underestimated. Talking about politics, day two and a standing appointment with the First Minister of Scotland in the morning drawing room of Holyrood Palace, where the Queen meets visiting heads of state while she's in residence. Accompanied by the presiding officer of the Scottish Parliament, our First Minister Nicola Surgeon sat with the Queen for a friendly discussion and the pair apparently got on very well together as the Queen was described as smiling <laughs> and animated. Obviously no discussion of another referendum there then. Meanwhile, Prince William made a visit to the shipyard on the Clyde, where HMS Glasgow, go a Royal Navy Type 26 frigate, is being constructed. In an emotional speech, he said, my family's affection for the Royal Navy is well known. And as I saw the work taking place here today, I was thinking of my grandfather, the Duke of Edinburgh. He would have been fascinated and excited to see such advances in skills and technology being put into practice. The Prince also announced that the Queen has approved the appointment of his wife Catherine as sponsor of the new ship and that she'll be there for the naming ceremony when the ship is completed. Before leaving, William was presented with three wooden models of Royal Navy warships for the children at home to paint. In the evening, the Queen visited Stirling Castle to unveil a plaque to commemorate the reopening of the Argyle and Southern Highlanders Museum after a three-year renovation. Named as the Colonel-in-Chief of the Argyle and Southern Highlanders on her 21st birthday by her father, King George VI, the Queen remained patron until the regiment was incorporated into the Royal Regiment of Scotland in 2006. As the longest-serving patron of one of Scotland's oldest regiments, it was fitting that the Queen was there to welcome almost 100 veterans of the Highlanders who'd gathered from across Scotland and England for this special event. Day three and the Queen was joined by the Princess Royal on a visit to the Children's Wood Project in North Kelvin Meadow, Glasgow, where an unloved patch of ground in the city has been transformed by locals into a haven for the community. One keen gardener's ripening strawberries caught the royal eye before they spoke with young people about the benefit of having access to outdoor space, particularly during the pandemic. Joining a group toasting marshmallows over a fire pit, the Queen again declined, but she did accept a pot of honey produced by the community's own beehives, no doubt to spread on the royal toast without fear of dripping it on her good clothes. Each year, many of the royal visits celebrate Scotland's sector-leading success in the world of technology, and this tour was no different, with a strong emphasis on efforts to combat the challenges of climate change. From companies who are heading the way in, space, in the space technology field, developing advanced satellites, some no bigger than a whiskey bottle, that are used to collect data for maritime surveillance, environmental monitoring 
and weather forecasting to a visit to the Edinburgh Climate Change Institute of the University of Edinburgh, of which Princess Anne is Chancellor. Queen and the Princess Royal also met representatives from Scotland's Children's Parliament, who had contributed to the recent Scotland's Climate Assembly. Children presented the Queen with two rowan trees that will be planted as part of the Queen's Green Canopy, a UK-wide tree planting initiative to celebrate Her Majesty's Platinum Jubilee next year. Unfortunately, one of the traditional highlights of the Royal Visit was missing this year, a casualty of Covid regulations. The Holyrood Garden Party is the Queen's opportunity to welcome around 8,000 guests from all walks of life to recognise and reward the positive impact that they've had on their community. The guests join her in the gardens of Holyrood Palace for afternoon tea, accompanied by music from regimental bands and pipers. Always hoping that you might be one of the random guests that the Royals stop to talk to as they circulate, this is the hottest ticket in town and can't be begged or bought. Entry is strictly by invitation only. There's also a strict dress code, with gentlemen requested to wear lounge suits or kilts, while women are encouraged to wear day dress with hats or fascinators. National dress and uniform are also worn, and with everyone in their finery, it's a real bonus if the day dawns fine and bright. This year would have been perfect. Even without the garden party, a busy schedule by anyone's standards. At 95 years old, the Queen seemed to be thriving on it. As the country settles down again and the odour of fresh paint fades, you'd think that she'd be keen to get back to Windsor to put her feet up. Not a bit of it. On arrival home, she was seen driving herself to the Royal Windsor Horse Show, where she mingled with equestrian fans before back to official business and welcoming the German Chancellor Angela Merkel. A remarkable woman, carrying out a schedule that would exhaust someone half her age. Gosh, Liz, that really is quite a schedule when you hear it set out like that. That was amazing. It takes me ages just to get through it, Helen, but I thought people would be interested just to know what, you know, what an active involvement she takes in the country. And I absolutely agree with you. The photographs of her in Scotland, she is just beaming. And you know, I'm sorry she declined the iron brew. That might have just been a wee boost for her. <laughs> Can you imagine the advert that would have come out of that? Oh, no. But talking about talking about the photos, did you see the hats, Helen? They are works of art. Oh yes, I mean she really is her dresser. The, whoever is her, Angela Kelly does her dresses. I don't know who does her hats, but I mean they really have got really good eyes because she's in bright colours again. She's she's looking she's looking lovely. She is, she's looking but so Liz, well. talking about dresses and things, you mentioned the garden parties and the the wonderful sort of array of uh, dresses and kilts and colours that you see there. But another thing you didn't mention that I know has been missed out this year because of COVID, and I think you've got some information, you've been to one, is the investiture that the Queen holds. Yeah, that's the pinnacle of the meeting with the Queen. Um, She holds them in June after the honours are announced uh, uh, to celebrate her birthday. We have an honour system where people who've contributed to the community can be given an award at various levels. 
And uh, one of these is an OBE, an Order of the British Empire. And I've done nothing myself. But I'm very fortunate that my husband was awarded an OBE. And we were particularly lucky because we got the invite to Buckingham Palace to the Queen herself. At Holyrood, it's very often Prince Charles that does it. But um, we were down there. And because we had Brian's dad with us, who was 94 at the time, we got in early and we got what I thought were first your front seats. I thought, yeah. <laughs> and then just as it was about to start, guests in wheelchairs came in and had the front which wasn't a problem in itself but the woman in front of me had a swear a six foot sombrero on her head as her hat and I spent the whole time dodging this and so really special times when you get to meet your monarch you know people um, may think you know it has no meaning in the current age but it does you know they're highly respected in Scotland. Yes, I agree. And, you know, I, I've not had the the opportunity or the, the privilege of being at an investiture, but I have been to a garden party many, many years ago at Holyrood. And I think when we were there, it wasn't a bright, sunny day. It was quite a wet day. And a lot of these wonderful hats, you know, the size of the sombrero that you were talking about in <laughs> London, were just collapsing round ladies' faces. So nowadays, I think when you're in Edinburgh and you see people making their way to the garden parties, they're practically all the women are wearing very, very small hats, you know, and fascinators just in case. Yeah, absolutely agree. But the other thing that you see is people walking around in brand new shoes with high heels. And of course, it's held in gardens, which are grass, you know, lawns. And you just think when it's wet, oh, oh, there goes a pair of good shoes. <laughs> You'd be better off in your wellies. You know, it's such a shame. Yeah. But this year would have been perfect. Because it had been dry for so long that the, the ground would have been quite hard too for the peely heels. Yeah, yeah, but a good day to show off your finery. But it's just there's such a buzz. You see people coming in on the trains and you see them all over because there's 8,000 people there. Um, so they're all over the town making a day of it. Um, it's just really special events, the garden party. Missing this year, but hopefully back again on the social calendar next year. So another event that's a, a regular annual, annual occurrence is the tennis, Helen. Tell us all about that. Yes, well, this event takes place in England, but I'm going to tell you about the Scottish representations over the years. Today, as it is Wimbledon fortnight, I'm talking about the game of tennis and in particular its popularity and success in Scotland. Tennis in its early forms was introduced into Scotland from France in the Middle Ages. It was traditionally known as cage or cash in Scotland and is the ancestor of the the tennis we know today. This is what we call real tennis and was played by Mary Queen of Scots. An important milestone in the history of tennis was the decision of the All England Croquet Club to set aside one of its lawns at Wimbledon for tennis, which soon proved so popular that the club changed its name to the All England Croquet and Lawn Tennis Club. In 1877, the club decided to hold a tennis championship. It decided on a rectangular court measuring 78 feet by 27 feet. They adapted the real tennis method of scoring, 15, 30, 40 game, and allowed the server one fault. These major decisions remain part of the modern rules. 22 entries were received and the first winner of the Wimbledon Championships was Spencer Gore. 
Believe it or not, Liz, before the advent of the Murray brothers, Scotland had some success in the sport of tennis. In the 19th century, tennis was a fairly exclusive sport, being mainly played by the upper classes. Scotland produced two Wimbledon men's champions in this period, Herbert Lawford and Harold Mahoney. Herbert Lawford was joint world number one tennis player and won the men's singles championship at Wimbledon in 1887 and was runner-up five times. Harold Mahoney won the Wimbledon championship in 1896. In 1823, Patrick Vaux's Lyon, a relative of the Queen Mother, won the doubles championship at Wimbledon alongside Herbert Wilberforce. It was in 1927 that Ian Collins made his Wimbledon debut, the first of 12 Wimbledon championships that he entered. He made the finals at Wimbledon in 1929 in the doubles and mixed doubles, and he repeated this again in 1931. Tennis got a further lease of life in the 1960s and 70s, but this time it was the turn of the women. Winnie Shaw was a three-time winner of the Scottish Grass Courts Championships. In Grand Slam events, she reached the Australian Open semi-finals and the Wimbledon quarter-finals in the early 70s. In doubles events, she reached the semi-finals at Wimbledon in 1972, playing with another player from Scotland, Joyce Barclay. After her retirement from tennis, she became a keen golfer and played internationally for Scotland. In 2002, she was posthumously inducted into the Scottish Sports Hall of Fame. In the 1960s, Joyce Barclay had reached the fourth round in singles at Wimbledon. Another female player playing in the 1970s and 80s was Judy Murray, who grew up in Bridge of Allen near Stirling. She won 64 titles in Scotland during her junior and senior career and decided to have a go at the professional tour around 1976. It's said she gave up the idea of competing professionally as she was homesick. However, she'd played against some of the big names of the times. She claims that her playing style did not have any big shots, but she was quick around the court and read the game well. In 1981, she represented Great Britain at the World Student Games. And then she began coaching, and it was the initial coach for her sons before handing over the reins as their professional careers bloomed. Aside from her own son, she's coached many players at regional and national level under the auspices of the British tennis governing body, the Lawn Tennis Association. But perhaps most Britons will remember Virginia Wade winning Wimbledon in 1977, the tournament, tournament centenary year and the year of the Silver Jubilee of Queen Elizabeth II. The Queen attended Wimbledon for the first time since 1962 to watch the final. So let's fast forward to the success of the Murray brothers. As I said earlier, it was their mum who was their first coach, but in order to reach international standard, they had to go abroad to train. Andy moved to Mar Barcelona at the age of 15. He began his professional career around the time Roger Federer and Rafael Nadal established themselves as the two dominant players in men's tennis. Murray had immediate success by... 2007 at the age of 19 and by 2010 Murray and Novak Djokovic had separated themselves from the rest of men's tennis joining Federer and Nadal in the big four the group of players who have dominated men's tennis since then. In 1912 Andy Murray won the US Open and the men's singles gold medal at the London Olympics.
He finally realised his lifelong dream in 2013 when he became Britain's first Wimbledon men's singles champion for 77 years after beating Novak Djokovic in a historic final. He had his career best season in 2016. At Wimbledon, the afternoon was all about the man from Dunblane who romped to a straight sets win to become the two-time winner and this time he soaked it all in. During that year, Murray defended his men's singles gold medal at the 2016 Rio Olympics to become the only player with two Olympic gold medals in singles. He also became world number one for the first time. But since that year, Murray has struggled with various injuries and fell out of the top 100 in 2018 due to only seldom playing on the tour. It's just great to see him back in Wimbledon at this It's just great to see him back at this this year at Wimbledon. Sadly he went out in round 3, but as ever he gave us some heart-stopping moments. As we know Andy was not the first Murray brother to win Wimbledon. Like Andy, Jamie had to leave Scotland to progress his tennis. At the age of 10, Jamie was number 3 ranked tennis player of his age in Europe. He was junior world number two when he was 13 years of age and he was selected to be educated at the Lees School in Cambridge with four other boys whilst being trained by national coaches. He didn't really like this and he returned home after eight months. Back home it is said he did not touch a tennis racket for two years. However, as we know, Jamie did pick up a racket again and was soon back in the top echelons of tennis. He won Wimbledon Mixed Double Championship in 2007, becoming the first Briton to win a Wimbledon title for 20 years. He repeated the win again in 2017. Jamie certainly excels at doubles tennis and has been a winning team with a number of partners, including his brother Andy. The brothers are still loyal to their Dumblane roots and were both married there. Andy bought the Cromlicks Hotel near Dumblane, in which they both had their wedding receptions. It has been extensively refurbished and includes a tennis court in Wimbledon colours. But on this Wimbledon fortnight, let's reflect on some of the changes. A crowd of 200 watched Spencer Gore become the first champion, and today the centre court alone at Wimbledon has a capacity of just under 15,000. In 1968, the first Open Wimbledon prize money was £26,000, of which £2,000 went to the men's singles champion and £750 went to the women's singles winner. In 2021, the total pot is £35 million, with £1,700,000 each for the women and the men's singles champion. How things have changed. Any thoughts on that one? Yeah, well, it certainly brings back the memories. You know, it wouldn't be July in the beginning of the school holidays if Wimbledon wasn't on the television. Do you remember, Helen, as soon as it came on, you would go and get your tennis racket out of the cupboard. You'd go and search out the tennis balls and off you'd go to your community courts. And there you'd play for the whole of it, thinking that uh, Wimbledon was ahead of you. That's right, yes. Yes, I used to play at the Laurel Hill Tennis Club in Stirling, and that was a good one. But even growing up in Stirling, I remember the Bridge of Allen Tennis Club was always one of the clubs uh, to play at. 
uh, that's where Judy Murray played. It was it was always a big court. It was just my local community court, I'm afraid, but still got just as much enjoyment. But what you were saying about Andy, I mean, he really is Scotland's brave heart. I mean, we follow him, the highs, the lows, the agony, the <laughs> ecstasy. And this week, he really put us through it. And he managed to scrape through um, round two, but unfortunately, he just wasn't good enough. And it was a Canadian that put him out and a lovely guy. So I hope that he does, um, Dennis, somebody, I hope he does really well in the tournament because he played absolutely brilliantly. And at the end of it, he said to Andy, you're my hero. Yeah, and it was it was quite interesting. I remember, Liz, I don't know whether you remember, but when Andy won Wimbledon for the first time and everyone was saying, oh, it's so great having our first winner. You have never had a winner first since Fred Perry and this, that, another thing. It was his grandmother, uh, Shirley Erskine, who said to the commentator uh, when she was asked, oh, you must feel so proud that you know, your grandson has become a, Wim- a Wimbledon champion. And she said, yes. But my other grandson, Jamie, was a Wimbledon champion a few years back. You know, nobody, everybody forgets about Jamie. Yep. Yes, it's true. But uh, I wouldn't like to be Judy Murray sitting up there watching them all. You know, uh, you know she, she gets put through the mill sometimes as well. But it's, it's, I think it's quite interesting and, and seeing how things have changed, the fact that I know that Billie Jean King was one of the great campaigners to get equal and um, prize money for the women as for the men. Uh, you know, if you think about way back in the 1960s, the men got £2,000 and the women got 750 That was a huge difference there. Yeah, and Andy has been a great supporter of the women's game as well. He's always, um, you know, when in his radio and television interviews, he's always very supportive of the women. Yeah, and he was one of the first uh, male tennis players to uh, employ a woman coach. So it's so it's it's a great game, and the weather's been great for it. And I think tennis has taken an upsurge, mainly thanks to the to the Murray brothers, to Andy and Jamie. You're just bringing it back into the into the forefront of being a a game that is worth playing. Yep, he's certainly been you know, at the forefront of Scottish sport. There's nobody really coming up there behind him. So we just need to hope that there's some budding tennis player out there at the moment knocking the ball backwards and forwards. And uh, nowadays, of course, it's it's um, you know so structured. You have to get into one of these tennis schools and um, you sort of take it through from there. Yes, and and you don't get your rankings until you, you, you do the tour. I suppose it's the same in many sports. I think golf is exactly the same. Uh, but it was interesting you you realizing just how many Scottish tennis players had been up there in the championships right through from the eighteen hundreds, and and also seeing the names that that you remember you, know, Billie Jean King and Rod Laver and some of these Tony Newcomb some of these names just coming up it was lovely. Okay, Helen. Well, let's take it on to word of the week. What's your word of the week? Well, one thing I noticed, Liz, when I was watching Wimbledon, watching Andy Murray play Wimbledon, that he bounces the ball about seven times before he takes his serve. And what we would say in Scotland is he's stoting the ball. He stoats the ball about seven times before he takes his serve. So stoat, to stoat a ball is my word. Yeah, a good Scottish word. And if you didn't have a player to play against... 
stoat the ball against the wall. You stand there for ages, stoating a ball off the wall and hitting it with your tennis yes. racket if you're Billy No Mates <laughs> and you don't have anybody to play with. <laughs> okay, well, mine, I was trying to think of something fitting for the Queen um, and her visit this week. And uh, it comes back to a good old Scottish one. It's very common, very well known, but nonetheless um, an important one. And that's haste ye back. Um, haste ye back, hurry back, come back soon is a traditional a traditional um, goodbye in Scotland. And so as the Queen leaves us this week, it's haste ye back, your majesty. Oh, that's that's a lovely sentiment. And let's hope we see her next year for her platinum um, jubilee. And a lot of trees being planted. Yes, yes. So that's that's us for another another week, and uh, we'll finish up there. And see you next time, Liz. Thanks, Helen. Bye. Thank you. Bye. And there we have it—the end of another episode of Scottish Blethers. If you'd like to join us on social media, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Scottish Blethers. And if you'd like to leave a review, please do so on your podcast platform of choice. It's cheery bye from me. Ta-ta the new from me. And if I don't see you through the week, I'll see you through the windy from me. Bye. See ya. Bye. Bye.